Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What a powerful passage. What an interesting passage that we have this morning. What a long passage we have this morning. It's a lot of ground to cover in, in such a short time, uh, especially with, with Paul and Romans, which is a very 
theologically heavy book, um, heavy letter, but uh, we're, we're going to jump right in this morning. Good, good morning, church. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here at Waypoint, and I'm, I'm so glad to, uh, to get to dive in, to have the privilege of diving into Romans 4 this morning with you. Over the past several years, I've heard this sentiment expressed on numerous occasions. It usually comes up when something, somebody does something wrong, or, or maybe what we would perceive as stupid, and we're, we're kind of surprised by it. Uh, I've heard it on, on the radio. I've seen people say it on TV. Uh, seen people write about it on, in opinion pieces and on social media posts. Maybe you've heard it too. Maybe you've seen this too. It sounds something like this. Really? It's 2020, and, and we still have people who, who are doing this? Who think like this? I thought we'd be past this by now. I mean, come on, really? Man, we, we need to be better. Fill in the blank. Do better. And in making these kinds of statements, you could say that, that our faith in people is generally optimistic, Right? That we think the, the moral IQ of, of society and as a whole is, is generally high, robust. So it surprises us when we discover that, that some beliefs are not as uniform as we thought, or, or that some ideas that are outdated are still in, in practice, they're still in circulation. And we're like, why? Wow. And couldn't people reasonably make this same criticism of the church? When are we going to get our act together? I thought the church would be better than this by now. What are we even doing? What have we been doing for the last 2,000 years? But if our truest hope looks like the Christian version of self-actualization, then we are in a world of trouble. Because it would mean that we've bought into the lie that genuine faith really looks like religious maintenance. Maybe that's why people's faith plateaus over time. So we're just trying to maintain. We're trying to keep the status quo. We're trying, to, we're trying to fan the flames that aren't there. But that is not the Christian's story. The Christian's story is that the God of the universe encounters real sinners and makes something of their lives. Meaning you have a bright future with incredible hope because God has brought you into his family. Now this morning, as we turn to Romans 4, at the ground level of Paul's argument is Genesis 15, 6, which he quotes in verse 3. It says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Paul naturally turns to Abraham, not only to explain to us the nature of our faith, but to point out the relevance of God's promise-keeping in our lives today. You see, you have been adopted into God's family by faith. What God credits in Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished, he says it's been added to your account. That what Jesus has done, what he's rewarded, you will be rewarded. And so this is important for us to understand. This This is a really key point. Our faith is not predicated on how fervently or how dogmatically we profess that God is real. People don't receive Jesus in their lives because at some point he sounded like a good idea. People come to faith in Christ because they've truly encountered him. The real Jesus has come into our lives and we received his words. We received his promises. 
We receive the things that he was accomplishing as our own. In other words, saving faith is trusting that when God says he counts you as righteous in Christ, that not not only does he mean it, but he does it. He does it. And we share in the same faith when we trust Christ like this. Not because he owes it to us. I mean, when when Amazon Prime fails to make good on their promise of two-day delivery, I get frustrated because I paid for it. I feel like they owe it to me. I didn't make that promise. They made that promise. So I expect it. But with Jesus, in Christ, I paid for nothing. I paid for nothing, and yet I'm given everything. I trust Christ because his words are purer than gold, that he is a sure foundation to stand on. Abraham believed God like this, and we're invited to believe God like this too. Real faith in the real Jesus. And so I have three points that I want to draw out this morning from Romans 4, from where I, where I see Paul going here on the effects of, of our faith, and, and not just our faith, but, but for our church, and for our church as a whole, our faith as a community, as a family. God's crediting us as righteous by faith ends our boasting. It unites across ethnic lines, and it gives us stories of faith. These are all characteristics of our faith that I see happening, being played out here. And so number one, God's crediting puts an end to our boasting. Now among us, in our church body, we have master's degrees, we have MDs, we have PhDs, we have teachers and social workers and financial advisors and engineers. We know a thing or two about work. We know what it is to to be high achieving. We're successful. We're good at it. We like it. We like what it gives us. And since as long as we can remember, we have learned to run the path of human achievement. And as we became Christians, it became natural to even bleed that into our faith. But we know even our best efforts don't solve life's most difficult problems. It definitely doesn't fix the sin problem. It definitely doesn't address that question. What do we do about that? I mean, this is why, at face value, religion doesn't work. And God knows this about us. He knows that we're like this. He knows that we do this, that we think this way, that we try to do these things. Romans 1.21 brings this into view for us. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's one thing to be ignorant. But God is pointing out that we were the kind of people who were proud in our ignorance. And those are not fun people to talk with. But this isn't a new problem. But there is a new development that's worth noticing in God's story. The ungodly are being adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. So Paul raises an important question as we turn to Romans 4. How did God justify Abraham? And what does that say about how he might justify us? And I love this in Romans 4 too. I love how, how Paul talks about this in verse 2 because as we said, we're quick to jump to performance even if we know it doesn't work. But here's what Paul says. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. Don't we all have accomplishments and credentials 
and statuses that, that mean something to us, we never say it out loud. We feel entitled, at least a little bit. Paul continues, but not before God. Not before God. God is in the business of humbling the boastful, but he does it in a way that we wouldn't expect. I mean, typically humbling the proud means overwhelming them with your superiority or, or somehow bringing into view their own inferiority. You humble proud people by making them aware that they are not who they think they are. They need a reality check. And if you've been around those people, you probably want the reality check to happen soon. Jay Williams, a highly touted guard out of, out of Duke, was drafted by the Chicago Bulls back in 2002. I heard him tell this story one time about his welcome to the NBA moment. He's talking about this, this game he was playing his rookie year. He's going up, going up against a future Hall of Famer, Kevin Garnett, and the Minnesota Timberwolves are playing in Minnesota. And he's like, I'm just going off. Like, I'm having the, the, ga- like the game of games, and I'm feeling myself, and I'm thinking, they can't stop me. I've arrived. Like, this is my stamp, and it's happened right, right, right against Kevin Garnett. So there's this one possession in the game where... Jay Williams has the ball, and Kevin Garnett gets switched onto him, which is usually a mismatch when you have a guard against a forward. Kevin Garnett's like 6'11", Jay Williams is 6'2", and, and Jay Williams is like, I, I, I'm going to drive to the basket, and I'm going to do a floater right over him, which, if you know basketball, bad idea. <laughs> like, don't do that. But Jay Williams is feeling himself, and he's like, I even put a little bit extra on it to make sure I could account for, for KG's 6'11 frame. But Jay Williams found out that the NBA isn't, it's not Boy Scouts. This isn't Little League. This is the real deal. And Kevin Garnett is nobody to play around with. And so he lofts the ball into the air and he watches KG rise to the very height of the ball and then swat it down the court. Jay Williams said, I I didn't forget that. I never forgot that. That was my welcome to the NBA. Like, okay, I'm not who I think I am. That humbles you. But God's strategy for humbling us was not humiliation. It wasn't our humiliation, but His. Meaning the wonderful works of God and His justifying the ungodly is is not about bringing about a, a demoralized community overwhelmed by the weight of newfound failures. That's not what we mean by ending boasting, but but rather by fulfilling his covenant promises, God is bringing into view a new family through faith who have nothing to fear as they seek the Lord. Does that defy expectations for you too? No more boasting in ourselves actually makes us more confident, more joyful people. Why? Because our boast is in the one who in all authority and truth chooses to deal with us most directly in his kindness and grace. Look at how Paul expounds on this point for us. In verses 4 and 5, we see that good works don't merit favor. Now something I find so compelling about the person of Abraham that I I didn't really think about in this way before is that he didn't have his life together before before God came to him. It's hard to think back to to Abraham and not associate him with this this enduring life of faith. And surely Abraham has has received everything that God promised. God has made him into a great nation. He's he's given him a great name and he's, he's making him a blessing to the nations. God is doing this through Abraham. But before all of that, 
there was a day when Abraham was just Abram. And if you look at, at Abram, there were no prereq- prerequisites that he was required to pass before he was admitted into God's program. No one submitted references to vouch for his character or interviewed him to assess his fitness for the job. When God first called Abram, by all accounts, he was ungodly. He was in many ways unaware of the things of God, just like we were. Which means that Abraham started where we all start in the eyes of God. And this is a powerful apologetic in favor of the inclusion of Gentiles as recipients of God's favor and promises. This is surprising. But he does this. He he promises it. This is from the very beginning. So if good works, as as we're finding out, don't merit God's favor, if even our best attempts at faithfulness don't get us a seat at the table, what about the flip side? Do our transgressions disqualify us? Are the trajectory of our lives only a daily walk toward condemnation? But what Paul makes clear in the positive, he quotes the Psalms to address in the negative. Good works don't earn God's favor. But see, transgressions, they don't deter it either. Paul says in verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So from a theological standpoint, Paul is saying these in these first several verses, that the essence of our faith can be affirmed in in these two statements. Your sins are forgiven, and Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. Psalm 32 says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And Paul is trying to show us the connection between Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 to help us understand the total package of God's justifying work. God has chosen to bless us by no longer counting our sins against us. But he doesn't stop there, as we've been saying. He clothes us in Christ's righteousness. In the movie Les Mis, the criminal Jean Valjean, after 19 years in prison, is taken in by a local bishop. While most people treated him as a a total liability and, and untrustworthy, the bishop willingly welcomes him in. But despite this act of Christian hospitality, Valjean decides to steal the bishop's silver in the night, only to be caught by the morning. And when the authorities confront the bishop with Valjean's theft and lies, the bishop doesn't even miss a beat. He says not only is Valjean telling the truth, which he wasn't, he said, the, the bishop gave these to me, he was lying, Not only was he telling the truth, but he forgot to take the best silver, which he didn't. And so the bishop hands him the silver candlesticks and blesses him and sends him on his way. And this verse in Valjean's next song says it all. It says how broken and humble he was. Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? In Christ, God has touched our souls and taught us love. He's changed our estate. Notice that verses 7 and 8 offer no qualifiers. There is no limit to the forgiveness of God. Can such things be? 
That's what God says to us in a few short verses. Paul not only is bringing to focus the depths of our sin, but also the gracious acts of God's love and kindness toward us. And this is why faith puts an end to our boasting. God addresses what we've come to understand as human impossibilities, which leaves us with only one possible conclusion. God does the work, not us. God does it. And isn't that what humbles us? Isn't that what overwhelms us with joy? I mean, this is the kind of news that resets the course of families for generations. But who all can get in on this? Paul's about to to ruffle some feathers in in this Roman church, or these churches. Number two, God's crediting unites across ethnic lines. Unites across ethnic lines. What we see materializing in the New Testament is something that God said he intended to do all along. God even gave Abraham a new name to better reflect what he would do through him, that he would make him a father of many. And God has done it. Now, when Paul refers to Jew and Gentile, he's he's using two distinguishing categories to talk about all people. And what we see happening here is that God's uniting across ethnic lines means that our faith, our faith truly is the marker of family identity. But if it's our faith that unifies us, then how do we resolve issues about our relationship with traditions that have come in? In particular, do people need to get circumcised and start following the religious customs of the Mosaic Law? Well, you'll be happy to hear that Paul's answer is is no. Circumcision does not qualify us. It doesn't qualify us. Now, there are Jews who believe they are recipients of covenant blessings, covenant benefits, because of their association with the covenant symbol, circumcision. Their being circumcised, or so they thought, qualified them as members of the family of Abraham and therefore heirs to the family estate. But Paul is pointing out that the gospel doesn't permit that kind of entitlement. Not like that. And so Paul shows from the life of Abraham that circumcision actually wasn't a prerequisite to covenant endowment. The thrust of of Paul's argument sounds something like this. This is in, in simplest terms. In Genesis 15... God counted Abraham as righteous by faith. In Genesis 17, some scholars believe 14 to 29 years after this, covenant affirmation, God God established circumcision as a symbol of covenant membership. Therefore, because faith and righteousness came before circumcision, we cannot say that circumcision qualifies us for membership into the family of Abraham, lest we exclude Abraham. That doesn't make sense. But what this also does is twofold. And this is where it starts to get a little murky. This is where it gets a little, get a little controversial for this church body. On the one hand, it argues for the inclusion of Gentiles in the blessings of God. That's great. We love that. On the other hand, it excludes some circumcised Jews as true partakers of God's promise keeping. Hmm. Jesus addresses this same heart issue in the Gospel of John. And Paul's going to come back to this later in in his letter to the Romans. But in John 8, Jesus has a dispute with some Jews over whose children they are. They're claiming to be children of Abraham. Jesus is saying, "Uh, I don't know about that. Actually, it may be better suited to to call you children of the devil. Yeah, that's not a fun conversation to have with your friends, right? (laughs) And so Jesus, Jesus pushes back on their assumption. He says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. 
As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. Now, the issue at hand isn't directly related to circumcision in, in John 8. Jesus is pointing out that true children of Abraham believe the words of God. And regardless of whatever your cultural context is, whatever your cultural background, that means something to you. That should mean something to us. Because that's applicable to all of us. True children of Abraham walk in the faith like Abraham. Physical lineage is not what credits a person as righteous in God's sight. This is not an inherited privilege. It's not being born into the right family. And to feel such entitlement is at the very least a heart issue. Nominal religion knows nothing of faith in Christ. And so when Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did, he's referring back to Genesis 15.6. This is what Paul is building his argument on. This is why Paul makes this clarifying statement in Romans 4.12. He says, And Abraham is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so all of this is meant to communicate that Abraham is the father of all who believe, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And if that is true, if that's true, then there is no superior group in the family of God. You see, in earthly families, this isn't necessarily the case. It could be the case, but it's not necessarily the case. And the older we get, the more the problems and conflicts come, come to light. We start to, to really grapple with these things and encounter these things. It could be issues related to money. It could be personality differences. It could be gossip, criticism, toxic relationships, favoritism. And the list could go on and on. And maybe in that system, you're, you're jockeying for position in the eyes of the family. But the family of God, this is not the case. And we shouldn't live like it. There is no jockeying for position in the eyes of God. We are one body. We are members of one body with Christ as our head. Who's favorited? Who's deserving? Christ. And we're in Him. And so Paul has to really draw this point out so that those who think they have the inside track really get that they do not. Abraham was uncircumcised when he was counted righteous before God. And that doesn't mean justifications for Gentiles only. But it does mean that the Jews can't just claim Abraham blindly. Paul's nuance in verse 12 is trying to say that a physical lineage to Abraham doesn't preclude them either. But those who are physically tied to Abraham are his children, his true children, if, if they follow in his faith. Meaning Jews aren't automatically in the family of God because of their circumcision. Because God's not after our commitment to tradition. He's after our hearts. So do you have ears that are attuned and hearts that are inclined to the words of God, to the things of God? It matters. The second thing we, should, we see in, is that law-keeping doesn't, doesn't qualify us either. Law-keeping doesn't qualify us either. Abraham was counted righteous by faith apart from works, apart from circumcision, apart from law-keeping. 
You get it, right? You're seeing this. You're starting to see this logic unfold for Paul. And, and as we saw in Romans 3, if law-keeping really were the standard for being deemed right before God, then everyone would be disqualified. There would be no family of God. But once again, Paul is trying to break down the dividing lines between Jew and Gentile as he points them back to the unifying faith in the finished work of the resurrected Christ. Law-keeping is not meant to put anyone at a disadvantage, but to view the law as an indicator of privilege is once again faulty thinking. At best, the law exposes you to your own shortcomings and needs. But while the law makes demands we cannot live up to, God's grace outperforms even our most sin-abounding days. So in looking at verses 14 and 15, we see that the law makes us transgressors. But the promises of God are what we believe by faith and make us blessed in His sight. So as Jew and Gentile come together in Christian community, Paul emphasizes the commonality of their faith. If the grounds for covenant community were predicated on law-keeping, then these Jewish Christians would have the upper hand. They'd have some kind of boast. They'd have something to, to... Give, give, be a footstool ahead of. But that would make the promises of God something that they're not. And N.T. Wright really spells this out for us. He says, the promise must be valid for the whole family, not just for one part of it. And this means that Gentiles can come in on equal footing with Jews. And all this is to give Abraham the multi-ethnic family God promised him in the first place. What this should teach us is that membership into God's covenant people brings together both Jew and Gentile. And as we said, the basis for this membership is one faith in the risen Lord Jesus. And as we see even in this church body, Waypoint Church, our church family, the gospel brings together people of diverse backgrounds. We see that. We're living this out. But we must be careful in thinking that diversity equals maturity. The diversity we see, I believe, means that the promise-keeping words of God are true. This has been God's plan all along. As a result of God's promise-keeping, we should expect the nations to come together under the banner of Christ's Lordship. We should be eager to welcome all groups of people with all types of backgrounds from all types of places as they're coming into this one faith in Christ. But here's what we must work through. How do we live out this one faith together? That's what this church body in in Rome is doing. Paul's trying to help them with. How do we live out this unified faith together? What requirements do we put on others to perform for the sake of belonging to the family of God? It must be no less than pursuit of God as we trust the Spirit to transform us day by day. He's doing it. We're trusting Him. Christianity is not a passive faith. But we must not add requirements to this faith so as to advantage one or disadvantage another. God has called us to obey Him, to follow Him, to bear up our crosses and and day by day walk toward Him. But if that is only costly to one group and not another, then we need to check ourselves. It is our responsibility as we grow up together in this faith to love one another as ourselves. But what could this look like? What could this look like? Number three, God's crediting gives us stories of faith. The beauty of justification is that it is a one-time event. God has done it. He has declared it and it is done. 
and he has credited Jesus' righteousness as if it were our righteousness. And here's the thing. It is. It really is. So if God has really done something for us that we could not do for ourselves, then he is establishing communities of faith filled with people who can pursue him without fear. And that also means we are all a work in progress. We're not finished yet. We still have room to grow. None of us has arrived. But we also don't occupy communities of constant condemnation, just piling it on people. We live as people who are changed and being changed by grace. We believe God is doing this in us, and that that means accepting the hard truths about ourselves the things we don't really want to hear, but that we know now in Christ can be repented of and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And so consider Abraham's faith. At at this point, we've been talking about the faith of Abraham more in theory. But the life of Abraham is one of hope and clinging, even when appearances and worldly expectations would advise him otherwise. And I don't think Paul's point in in helping us understand our faith in Christ is to paint this picture of Abraham as, as a story of heroism. I don't think we encapsulate this mutual faith like Abraham by suggesting that it's it's all about having the odds stacked up against us and watching God overcome it. He could do it, and we believe he's done it in Christ. But I don't think that's our daily story. I think it's more akin, I think what God is trying to show us and what what we're seeing through the story of Abraham is a a reversal. I mentioned Romans 121 earlier, which paints this picture of the darkened, foolish, and thankless condition of the human heart, of sinful people who have chosen to trust themselves and, and, and walk away from God. And God allows us to do it. But here in the faith story of Abraham, we see this beautiful reversal taking place through the forgiveness of sins and the crediting of righteousness. Listen to this. I'm indebted to N.T. Wright on on this point as he, he made this observation clear to me. Where the sinner of Romans 1 ignored God as creator, Abraham believed God as creator and life giver. Where the sinner of Romans 1 knew God's power and disavowed it, Abraham recognized God's power and was fully persuaded that he would do everything that he promised to do. In Romans 1, they they did not give God the glory he was due, but Abraham was strengthened in his faith and gave God glory. In Romans 1, where the people dishonored their bodies, God worked through the deadness of Abraham and Sarah's bodies to bring about new life. Meaning by faith, God is taking people who threw their, their lives away and giving them hope and a future. In Christ, God is giving us our lives back. Verse 24 says that this faith was also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This means any one of us can get in on this. In Christ, God is giving us stories of faith. Is he not the God of new beginnings? of death to life. And as we're learning how to truly live, we owe it to ourselves to lean into this multi-ethnic family that God has brought together as we humbly learn to love, call out, repent, and journey toward all that we have through faith in Christ. That means knowing each other's stories of faith we're living out. It means being involved in them, addressing one another in love with the counsel of God when we get this wrong. We're going to get this wrong. Expecting that we'll have to apologize to some people 
learning to care for those who are weaker in the faith, and also for those who think they're stronger than they really are. We should expect this. We should expect to stumble. But as we go, as we know, this this won't be easy. But here's the kicker. God helps us. God is helping us. He's the one who helps us endure as we run this race of faith in him. And those who are true followers of Jesus will listen to his words as we're being transformed into Christ's likeness. Talk about a preview of coming attractions. May we be a church like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your words, your life-giving words. God, we pray for your help as we, as we learn more of what it means to, to press into this, this multi-ethnic family that you, you are bringing us together as. God, that you are, you are accomplishing your will. You are fulfilling your promises that you have done it in Christ and you continue to do it until the day that you return. And God, until that day, may we, may we press on, may we walk in faith, may we continue to trust you. God, would you open up our eyes to the truth of your word and may we be receptive to it May we grow in our receptivity to your words as, as maybe for some of us we feel like our faith is weak. God, would you strengthen it? God, would you strengthen it like you did with Abraham? God, help us to walk in faith like he had and to trust in Christ, to cling to him as we go through the things that we go through each day. God, we know that you're good. We trust you. In, in Jesus' name, amen. At this time of our worship service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and we long for the day when we can do this in person, but we, we're going to do it. I'm going to do it here, and it'll be for you guys at home. Um, as we're thinking about the Lord's Supper and this meal, um, we want to be a people who just unite together together. Um, so as best you can, if, there's, if, if you'd like for us even to come to your home and do it with you, we are open to that. You can just email the church office and, and we can set that up. But we do want all of us to be able to participate this, in this at least once a month. And this is a time when we as brothers and sisters in Christ here and all over the world come together and reflect and remember the death and the suffering and the new life that we have in Christ and the new covenant we have in him. Last week in Romans 3, we looked at this powerful passage that is the essence of our faith, you know, how we come to Christ. And it says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had let the sins, left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And our faith in Jesus allows us to partake in this meal. And Jesus commands us and, and in love gives us this, this display of, his, of remembering 
his grace. So for this morning, we're going to do two things. One, we're going to confess our sins and accept his forgiveness. And two, we're going to take some time to just reflect on the new covenant and, and ask God what, what that means for us this week and this, this month as we trust him with each day. So what I want you to do is, is take a moment to just confess your sins to God. Some people literally like to exhale and just, just exhale the junk and, and confess it to God and lay it at his feet. You've already been forgiven of all your sins, but this is a practice for us as followers of Christ to remember that we're, we're there, but we're not there yet. We're being sanctified, but our, our glorified bodies are not here yet, and, and we come to him in a time of confession. So let's take a moment to confess our sins to God. Father, we confess that we fall short and we surrender to you and we confess these sins to you and we accept your forgiveness. Take a deep breath and just breathe in the forgiveness, breathe in the spirit, breathe in the reminder of the new life that we have in Christ. And let's just take a moment to reflect on this new covenant that we're under, that we are set free. We have been raised with Christ, raised to new life. And I, I don't know if how hard your week's been. I don't know what's going on. I know a lot of us are just, just struggling emotionally and physically and, and just we need God's grace today, this week, this month. So just, just take a moment to reflect on that you're a new creation, that you're part of this new covenant, that God is doing something in you and using you to be part of redeeming and restoring this world. God, I thank you that we are new creations in Christ. And I pray that you be with each person out there, that they can just live in this new covenant, live in this hope. And that when, we, when, when we're struggling and we, we fall short, and we, we just, that you would fill us with your spirit and renew us each day. God, we, we trust that to you. And, and be with us as we prepare our hearts to take this meal. In 1 Corinthians chapter, um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what I want you to do at home is, is take the bread and remember that this is the body of Christ that was broken for you. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray. Wow, Father... We get this meal that you've given us. We get to come before you on a regular basis and just say, we fall short. And we get to look at the cross and look at the forgiveness of sins and look at your death where death is passed over and, and we're redeemed and our sins are atoned for. And you pay the penalty 
and you brought us and raised us in a new life through your resurrection, God. We thank you for your sacrifice, and we, we just pray that we live in that each day. God, just go before us as we trust each day with you, and we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>